Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council and a proud member of the Dallas Committee on Foreign Relations as well. We are especially pleased today to have Ambassador Ryan Crocker with us today. Uh, just this morning, in a meeting with uh, President George Bush, uh, Ambassador Crocker, he had something to say about you. And he said, first, hello. And secondly, he said, you are one of the best diplomats that the United States has ever had. And uh, we are so pleased that you are with us today. I do want to thank the Dallas Committee on Foreign Relations for being our partner with today's event. Uh, we, l- we love working with, with Amanda and Becky, and, and thank you for the opportunity. Um, on behalf of uh, the DCFR, we also want to uh, thank Kathleen Gibson and all of her colleagues at uh, Citibank for being such a strong supporter of, of today's event for the members of the DCFR. And ladies and gentlemen, I always want to thank the Rosewood Crescent Hotel. Both of our organizations consider this hotel truly one of our uh, most important strategic partners. And uh, really, whenever you're thinking about a private event, whether personal or corporate, really do, do give the, the Crescent a call. Uh, tell them that you are affiliated with our organizations, and I bet you'll be very pleased with the, the results that you'll get. And I uh, also want to thank the Bush School. Uh, for their, uh, I think there's probably some uh, alumni of the of Texas A&M here as as well. Whoa, there we go. <laughs> and, and and the Bush School and the Association of the United States Army for their cooperation in today's event. Howdy. Come on, Aggies. <laughs> Uh, it's, uh, it's a delight to be here and to be here in front of this audience, um, uh, the World Affairs Council and the Dallas Committee on Foreign Relations. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the World Affairs Councils. Um, hope you all note the tie, and I, I don't see too many of them out there. Uh, you need to, Jim, you need to pick up your sails. It's a, <laughs> uh, uh, and I'm especially happy to see uh, so many members of uh, the Dallas area's uh, junior World Affairs Councils here, that you're literally the future of the country, um, and your interest and the knowledge you're acquiring by participating in these programs uh, will hopefully equip you to go out and um, clean up the nearly hopeless mess that me and my generation have made. Um, um, I just would say a word about um, World Affairs Councils. I've I've had a long association with them. Uh, They are, along with the Committees on Foreign Relations, the premier institutional link, in my view, between the world of international affairs and the American people. Uh, uh, You do critical work in ensuring that we have an informed public uh, that is able to Uh, understand and weigh events and uh, communicate to our elected leaders uh, reasoned positions. Um, uh, I have um, 
connected with world affairs councils in different ways. When I was in Iraq, as we approached our 2008 election, <clears throat> I began talking to the, uh, uh, the National Council about a leadership mission to Iraq during the transition period. And the world affairs councils did put that together. Uh, they came out to Iraq in um, uh, January 2009, just before the inauguration, um, had the opportunity to make their own direct independent assessments uh, of conditions and to report back to their councils and, and to the American people through a subsequent written report um, uh, what they saw as risks uh, and challenges, opportunities going forward. Uh, so World Affairs Councils play an active, vital role, uh, I think, in not just informing Americans of international events, but also helping to shape them. And I mentioned to, uh, to Jim Falk um, uh, that I, I would like to see leadership missions move forward into some of the other critical places in the world. Uh, as we talk about transition in Iraq, uh, I think it may be time for another leadership mission uh, into Iraq. Um, I think it's time for a leadership mission to Afghanistan as Americans wrestle with uh, the questions about our involvement there. I would love to see a leadership mission to Iran. Uh, uh, U.S. government officials can't go to Iran. World Affairs Council members can. Um, um, so if you're looking for an interesting place to spend a week, there, uh, there are three for you. Um, you, you can sign up at the door. Um, uh, lastly, I just would like to say a word about um, this council, um, of which I am a card-carrying member, I want you to know. Um, uh, uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth Council is, is known nationally as one of the um, strongest and most active councils anywhere in this country. Um, that, owe, that owes a great deal to Jim Fox's leadership, um, but it owes even more to uh, an engaged, active membership uh, and to sponsors and board members um, uh, who make all the difference. So uh, uh, a real honor to be here with you today. I'm, I'm also very honored to be in the presence of um, uh, this uh, distinguished Iraqi delegation. Um, uh, I, I had a chance to meet with them earlier and I'll, I'll refer to parts of that conversation. Um, what I, I told them, uh, since what I'll be talking about today is the future of Iraq after 2011, uh, we're, we're really lucky because you're in the presence of the future of Iraq. Uh, um, these are the people um, who are carrying forward the new Iraqi democratic experience um, doing so in conditions of difficulty and danger, but with total and absolute commitment. Um, uh, uh, so it's, uh, it's an honor for me to be in your presence today. Um, you're making a huge difference uh, for your country uh, and for your country's relations with the, um, the United States. So thank you. We are here to uh, talk about the future of Iraq, um, uh, but to do that, 
in any coherent way, I think we have to talk to talk about the past in Iraq, um, the, the history. Um, um, <clears throat> Ambassador Overwetter and I were talking over lunch. Um, uh, you know, Americans don't pay a lot of attention to history. Um, people in the Middle East do, and indeed, uh, in um, issues involving the Middle East, it isn't history. Um, uh, yesterday is very much today, um, uh, and we Americans ignore that at our own peril. Um, uh, we could pick our moment in history um, because Iraq has a lot of it, uh, going back 6,000 years. Um, uh, as we consider the antiquities of Dallas, uh, you just might bear that in mind. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I would just say a few words about the recent history of Iraq, the, the Saddam era. Um, uh, Americans know very little about that period in Iraq's history. Um, Iraqis know a whole lot. Uh, those who suffered through it in the country, those who were forced into exile uh, to save their lives, know all about the Saddam years. Um, I uh, had the opportunity early in my career to serve in Iraq when um, uh, Saddam uh, formally assumed power in 1979. I was there for two years. I, I've served in a lot of difficult places under some pretty tough regimes. But um, Saddam was like nothing the world has seen since the Second World War. Um, possibly only the Pol Pot regime was more brutal um, within a nation's borders. And even Pol Pot did not wreak the mayhem in the region that Saddam did with his invasions of Iran and Kuwait. Um, what, what we saw, what I saw in that era... Uh, was captured in Kanan Makia's book, The Republic of Fear. Um, very well named. Saddam ruled by fear, terror. He terrorized um, his own elites, uh, members of the Revolutionary Command Council, uh, always knew that there could be that hand on the shoulder at any moment, and you were a dead man walking. And he did it. Uh, and he took it all the way down. Um, he was an equal opportunity terrorizer um, against the Sunnis, the Shia, and the Kurds. Uh, he brought terror right into the hearts of families, uh, a tactic of his that I saw when I was there. Um, would be the knock on the door in the middle of the night and the arrest of a young man, 18, 19, 20 years old, from a family home. And about a month later, the family would get a call telling them that they could pick up the young man's body and accept the thanks of a grateful nation for their courage in turning in to the authorities the traitor in their midst, even though he was a family member. Now, no such thing happened. But uh, what this instilled, right down to the family level, was uh, a fear of even your own family members. Um, uh, that is how Saddam ruled. Um, through fear and terror um, uh, throughout the country. Now, why is this important? Um, 
First, it's just useful to remember that um, uh, while you can have a spirited conversation about whether 2003 was really worth it, um, uh, it does help to remember that Saddam was not going away. Uh, and the threat he posed to his own people and to the international order was not going away. But more fundamentally for this conversation, uh, Saddam's reign of terror and his deconstruction of Iraqi society has left a legacy um, uh, of fear um, that is one of the reasons why Iraq remains so hard. Um, it, it's tough to compromise um, uh, if your sense of the environment is that compromise can mean weakness and weakness can mean death. Um, uh, that is what Iraqis saw for all too long. Um, the Iraqis with us today represent a very different kind of Iraq and a very different kind of approach. Um, but you simply do not move um, in a short period of time uh, from uh, the order of terror that Saddam created uh, to a pluralistic, democratic order uh, based on compromised, secure as we are in, um, in the rule of law and uh, the ass absolute assurance that losing an election doesn't mean losing your freedom or even your life. Uh, this takes time to evolve. Uh, I... I frame this in another way. As I, I mentioned to our Iraqi visitors, for almost all of them, it's their first time in the United States. Uh, they, um, they praised greatly the American experience uh, in developing democracy, but we also reflected that American democracy didn't get built in a day. Um, it, it was 13 years from our declaration of independence before we finally... Uh, got a constitution, and that was after dead-ending in the Articles of Confederation uh, process. Uh, and even then, um, we papered over a lot of pretty critical issues, um, uh, just didn't deal with them. Um, and seven decades after our constitution was ratified, uh, we almost destroyed our republic in the American Civil War. Um, uh, that was over slavery, but fundamentally over states' rights issues. Um, what were the rights of a state versus a federal government? We didn't sort it out in the 18th century. We almost destroyed ourselves in the 19th century. L ladies and gentlemen, these are exactly the issues that Iraqis are wrestling with today. Um, um, as we move to the challenges of the moment to better understand uh, the prospects for the future, what are those issues? Um, weaknesses in rule of law um, uh, and widespread corruption. Um, well, you know, we had some challenges there too. Um, Tammany Hall, heard of that? It's, uh, um, you know, in our major cities uh, in the 19th uh, and early 20th century, um, huge problems of corruption. Uh, bit by bit, we chipped it out. Uh, really, we're not better people than everybody else. We just have a better system um, that keeps most of us reasonably honest most of the time. Um, but that was hard going. Uh, 
it's going to be hard going in Iraq as it's going to be hard going in Afghanistan. You, you just don't get there in a day. Look, my, my wife is from Chicago, and incidentally, just to be clear on the record, she did not get the State Department's uh, award for heroism for marrying me and putting up with me for the last 30 years. That is, that is, a, that is a rumor spread by my enemies. Uh, uh, we, we were married uh, in a civil ceremony by a judge in Chicago. Uh, that judge was later uh, convicted uh, of, of throwing trials um, in favor of the mob. Um, and, and, and did about a decade behind bars. Now, I've always argued that uh, that conviction ruled uh, all of his decisions as a judge null and void, uh, <laughs> but my, my wife is not buying it. Uh, um, so again, you know, rule of law, corruption, uh, you don't get there in a day. Uh, the current tensions within Iraq... Um, Sectarian tension between Sunnis and Shia have subsided. They're still there, but they're no longer expressed in terms of violence. Um, uh, ethnic tension between Kurds and Arabs um, has now emerged as a, um, uh, a more visible challenge. Uh, part, in part, this is based on history, um, uh, and it is a pretty bloody history between um, Saddam's regime in Baghdad and the Kurdish population in the north. Um, uh, again, uh, poison gas has been used a time or two in history. Only once has it been used within a country's borders against uh, an element of a country's population, and that was Saddam Hussein against the Kurds. Um, but there's something more fundamental there. It's the states' rights things again. Uh, uh, it is not yet sorted out in Iraq what the responsibilities and authorities are of a regional government in Iraqi Kurdistan vis-a-vis -a, -vis a federal government in Baghdad vis-a-vis -vis provincial governments uh, elsewhere in the country. It was only during my time in Iraq that the parliament took uh, legislative action to make it clear that governors in provinces could not assume command of federal forces in cases of emergency. That, that was an open issue. And uh, uh, throughout Iraq, disappointed governors had to shelve their plans to blow up microwave towers to make communication with Baghdad impossible and therefore assume command of federal forces. Uh, uh, so again, uh, complex, hard issues that go into building a democracy, um, uh, hard in this country under considerably easier circumstances, um, and very hard in Iraq going forward. Um, uh, another problem Iraq has that we mercifully have never really faced inside this country, um, uh, the pervasive presence and threat of terror. Um, uh, Al-Qaeda, alive, not terribly well, but alive, um, uh, looking for a day when they can regain the ground they lost um, uh, through the surge in um, 2007. Um, so the list goes on. Um, uh, does that mean somehow that this is just too hard to do? No, I think it's the opposite. Um, the progress that Iraqis made with our support um, 
over the last uh, three years has been extraordinary. When I, when I recall what Iraq looked like when I got off the helicopter on a, uh, a March night in 2007, um, the night before I arrived, the embassy had been rocketed, and we, we lost two of our people and had several others injured. I mean, uh, we were trying to take hold of the strategy um, in the middle of a war that was, that was literally inside our wire. Um, compare Iraq then to Iraq today, um, the, uh, the progress is extraordinary. Um, but it's still the beginning of the story. Um, talking to the delegation, uh, its members made the point, as they have made, I'm sure, in other conversations, um, um, as the U.S. transitions its role, it cannot abandon its role in Iraq. Um, we, we, we cannot take the view that um, uh, Iraq is somehow over, it's finished, our work there is done. Uh, because as these uh, brave Iraqis will tell you, it's not done. Um, uh, the ability of Iraqis to sustain this progress going forward is going to be, I think, directly related uh, uh, to the level and depth of U.S. commitment going forward. Uh, uh, we do not make decisions in Iraq. They have to be Iraqi decisions, um, but we can mediate and facilitate. Uh, those issues that may be too hard because of the legacy of, of Saddamism and, and other factors for Iraqis to compromise on with each other, uh, these can be things that... Um, uh, if, if we are part of the discussion, they can give to us and we can broker some deals. Again, they're Iraqi deals. They're not American deals. But I would say we remain, and certainly it's what I heard this morning, uh, uh, the indispensable guarantor, the indispensable neutral party uh, as Iraq takes painful step after painful step forward. Um, so it very much uh, is worth our sustained engagement. We, we have a structure for that. I, I negotiated uh, two agreements uh, in my final months in Iraq, the security agreement uh, that provides for a, uh, a phased orderly withdrawal of U.S. forces uh, in coordination with the Iraqis, with all U.S. forces to be out of Iraq by the end of 2011. Uh, but we also negotiated a strategic framework agreement um, that orders uh, U.S.-Iraqi relations in every sphere, um, uh, political, security, diplomatic, economic, commercial, educational, cultural, scientific. Uh, uh, and what I hope we will see as Iraq moves forward and as we transition from a primarily military lead to a primarily civilian lead, that that agreement will emerge, uh, again, as its name suggests, as the framework uh, for U.S.-Iraqi cooperation going forward. Um, uh, I think this is key. Because Iraq, for the last half a century, since the 1958 revolution, has defined itself... Um, as an adversary within the region and to the West. Uh, 
we now see the prospect of an Iraq that has a fundamentally different alignment um, uh, uh, toward the West, uh, toward the U.S., and at peace uh, in its region. This has not happened in our modern history, and it could profoundly redraw the geostrategic map of the Middle East. Um, that is worth staying engaged for. Um, and we're seeing that new, um, that new era dawn. Um, uh, a major U.S. oil company that happens to be based in the Dallas area uh, um, is, is one of those companies that uh, uh, has a contract for the development of Iraq's southern oil fields. Uh, this brings cutting-edge technology uh, to Iraq, uh, but it's also the first time ever um, that a major U.S. oil company has been involved in the oil sector of what will emerge as the world's second largest oil producer. Um, they're at um, about two and a half million barrels a day now. They have the potential of, of going up to 10 million barrels a day uh, uh, in a decade. Um, uh, this is Iraqi oil. It is not American oil. These are technical services agreements. They are not production sharing agreements. Oil is a hugely sensitive issue because of history in Iraq. Um, but our involvement as a partner in the development of Iraq's hydrocarbon industry and the development of that industry to add a substantial additional amount of oil um, from a a stable and Western-oriented producer is, shall we say, huge. Uh, there are many other economic opportunities in, in agriculture and financial services. The Europeans are, are moving in on this. Uh, we have been a little slow, unfortunately, uh, seeing risk when we should be looking at opportunity and looking at partnerships to manage risk. Um, uh, Turkey is involved in a major way in Iraq, um, including commercially, and Turkish companies have figured out how to do business effectively in some pretty rough neighborhoods. Um, I, I tell my friends in business, uh, look to your Turkish partnerships um, and see what we might do together with that key ally um, in a, uh, another important area. And I'm um, pleased to note that Texas A&M's own Borlaug Institute has been very much engaged, for example, in um, the development of Iraqi agriculture. So um, a key potential there. Um, uh, the, other, the other point I would make, uh, looking beyond 2011, and of course beyond 2011 is the era in which um, uh, according to our security agreement, U.S. forces are out of Iraq, um, is that that may not turn out to be the case. Um, we are going to have a substantial security advisory role in Iraq for many years to come, as we have had, for example, in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Um, Iraq's major weapons systems um, will not even be delivered until 2013 and beyond. Um, these would be the M1A2 tanks, uh, the F-16s, and, and other sophisticated systems. Um, but, but even beyond that, um, uh, I foresee some potential developments. Um, 
When we were negotiating the security agreement, um, the Iraqi leadership was determined that there be a clear deadline um, for full U.S. withdrawal, not conditions-based, and their argument was um, Iraq has a history with foreign armies, particularly the British, um, and the perception of a British occupation uh, delegitimized Iraqi governments, uh, particularly in the, um, the 40s and the 50s, and set the stage for the 1958 revolution. Um, the agreement we concluded in um, late 2008 took the occupation argument out of the political debate in both countries. It just stopped in this country. It stopped in Iraq. Um, um, I think we may see an Iraqi request when a new government is in place um, to – I think they're going to come to us late this year and say, you know that um, security agreement that idiot Crocker negotiated <laughs> back in 2008 with um, the, that hard withdrawal date of 2011? Let's, let's look at it again, shall we? Um, I, I see the potential for an, a Korea model to develop here. Uh, We've had substantial U.S. forces uh, in South Korea for 60 years. Not an issue in American politics. Uh, we are a force for stability. We're not taking casualties. Um, uh, I, I see us potentially evolving toward that in Iraq. Uh, again, this will have to be an Iraqi request, and Iraqis will have to decide whether they see a need or a desirability to, to have us on the ground um, going forward past the end of 2011. If they make that decision and they make that request, I hope very much we will listen carefully. Um, um, it is a relatively small investment for a very important country, a very important set of future relationships, and a very important people. Um, so that is one thing I would foresee looking beyond 2011. Another reason that is so important is because, you know, the neighborhood hasn't really changed, and it's still a pretty rough neighborhood, um, uh, Iran in particular, um, uh, but not just Iran. Iran uh, Iraq worries about interference from virtually all its neighbors at a time when its own defenses are not yet um, in, uh, in solid order. Um, and Iraq's neighbors take long views, uh, Iran in particular. Iran's had a bad couple of years in Iraq, um, uh, in part due to us, but largely due to uh, Iraqi determination to stand up against Iranian interference. Um, yet, Iranians do take that long view. And I imagine conversations saying, uh, looking at some of the press coverage of uh, are remissioning at the end of August, saying, hey, you know, your friends, the Americans, are going home. Um, and guess what? We're still going to be here. And we're going to remember who did what and said what and when they did it. Um, so maybe you better rethink um, some of your positions. Uh, the Iraqis are the toughest guys on a tough block. They're not going to be pushed around. Um, but I think it is in our interest to ensure they got some help, um, uh, that they've got support, moral and otherwise, 
um, as they order their own society, again, uh, not only with respect to significant internal challenges, but in a very rough neighborhood. That's, that's all part of it. Um, so again, we got a roadmap. It's the strategic framework agreement. Um, um, what we have to do is guard against um, our Native American impatience, uh, the desire to say our work here is done, um, that whatever one thought about 2003, it's now over, our troops are coming home, Iraq is on its own. Um, this is a pattern in American foreign policy. Um, uh, we have seen it in Afghanistan and Pakistan uh, uh, 20 years ago, uh, and we've seen the consequences of that. The, you know, the, the road to 9-11, in my view, uh, began more than a decade earlier when we decided that after the Soviets withdrew from Afghanistan, we could withdraw as well not only from Afghanistan, but from Pakistan. And Pakistan went from being, as they put it, our most allied of allies uh, during the 1980s fight against the Soviets to our most sanctioned of adversaries in the space of a year. Um, uh, as we not only withdrew um, and turned that particular page, uh, we slapped comprehensive economic and security assistance sanctions on them over their nuclear program, which they had announced 15 years earlier, um, and we ignored as we dealt with the Soviet menace, but then returned to uh, when we felt we no longer needed them. Um, the Afghan civil war broke out. The Taliban emerged triumphant. The Taliban invited al-Qaeda in from Africa, um, and the rest, as they say, is history. Um, uh, and we're back, and incredibly, having the same debate again. Uh, uh, maybe we don't need to be in Afghanistan anymore. Maybe it's just too hard. Well, you know, we're fighting the same adversaries there that brought us 9-11, and uh, their views haven't changed. Uh, you know, uh, if anything, it is a harder, tougher enemy than that which we confronted a decade ago. Um, you know, all the smart, stupid ones are dead. Um, uh, these are pretty tough guys out in the field. So this is about Iraq. It's also about Afghanistan and Pakistan. And the hinge for both is sustained U.S. commitment and engagement, the exercise, again, of what I call strategic patience, uh, the ability to look beyond our next election, um, to, to work against our own instincts, and impatience built this great country. I mean, get her done. Get on with it. Um, but uh, out there in the broader Middle East, uh, the clocks run on different times. I mean, I'm, I'm looking for the Baghdad clock on this one. Uh, it runs way slower than the Washington clock. And the Afghan clock runs slower still. Um, but we'd better be conscious of other people's timelines. Um, uh, the extent of other people's problems and the likelihood that if we walk away, those problems will become our problems in a very major way uh, before we make these kinds of decisions. So um, 
Beyond 2011 in Iraq, I see enormous potential, as I've outlined. I see a roadmap and a framework through our bilateral agreement to get us there. Um, but it is going to require that we keep Iraq solidly in our strategic focus, um, that we come up with the resources, increasingly civilian, for which you need a much bigger foreign service. Please write your congressman. Um, um, you need a much bigger uh, USAID operation. Um, uh, and above all, you need a sense from America's elected representatives and the American people uh, that the stakes there are important over the long run and that we need to be engaged in the long run. Um, so with that, I will um, uh, move from a monologue into um, a dialogue, I hope, and uh, look forward to your questions and comments. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. It was wonderful to uh, have your perspectives. We have a question from one of our young folks in the room, and uh, he wants to know what systems we have put in place, if you could speak to the systems, that help us build the democracy in Iraq. Uh, that's a great question because it gets at um, some pretty fundamental concepts of um, what the U.S., can do and should do in the realm of nation building. Um, um, I would suggest to you that the U.S. really cannot and should not um, develop systems that we think are great or that worked for us and then um, export those to Iraq or Afghanistan or anywhere else. Um, uh, Iraq has a tradition of democracy. Um, um, there were lively, powerful Iraqi parliaments under the monarchy uh, that chose prime ministers. Uh, Iraqis kind of know how to do that. Uh, uh, so they have reached back into their own history uh, to bring forward um, a system that is different than under the monarchy, but closer to Iraq's historical experience than it is to our own brand of democracy. Um, so again, I think it's important to be engaged, but also uh, to be a little bit modest. Um, um, you know, we probably, we were hugely indebted to the French at the time of the American Revolution, um, but would not have reacted well if the French had said, happy to help with liberation. Now here's the political system you need. It really works great in France. Uh, um, uh, you know, and of course... Um, it didn't work so well for so very much longer in France. Um, uh, you know, so uh, we are the greatest democracy on earth. Uh, we got there slowly and painfully, uh, and we got there in a uniquely American way. I think our role in Iraq is not exporting American systems. Um, it's showing the commitment, the patience, and the engagement to support Iraqis as they develop their own systems. Many of our visitors here today um, represent something entirely new in Iraqi political life. Um, that's the, the notion of federalism down to the regional and the provincial level. Um, as they find their way through um, 
issues involving the authorities of provincial and district governments, um, uh, uh, we, we can't give them the roadmap. I hope they found their experience here in this country looking at how American federalism works to be instructive, but they're the ones who are going to need to take back uh, ideas and see what's relevant to them and then look to us to support an Iraqi process because at the end of the day um, uh, if the roots are going to be deep and lasting it has to be a native plant um, so uh, that's what we're seeing in Iraq we do have a role um, we do have advisors that have been valuable in this process uh, but ultimately uh, good diplomacy and effective engagement involves listening as much as it does talking. Uh, listening to what Iraqis want, how they see their future conditioned by their past, and then figuring out how we can help. Um, or, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. You're in charge. Okay. Right. Thank you. We have microphones, and we have time probably for a couple of questions, maybe three. Yes, sir. With all the critical issues, Ambassador, why has it been so difficult for al-Maliki to form a government currently? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I tried to sketch out some of the broad sets of circumstances that um, make that the case. Um, first, the elections resulted in a virtual dead heat. Um, 91 deputies for Alawi, 89 for Maliki. Um, uh, so it, it, it forced a situation in which probably the two arch rivals in Iraqi politics uh, were going to have to fight something out. Right after the election, I, was, uh, I did a TV interview and I was asked um, um, when I thought there would be an Iraqi government. And I said I'm cautiously optimistic that one could be in place by the beginning of Ramadan, the, the second week in uh, August. And the interviewer was appalled that it could take five months. I was appalled, too, because as soon as I said it, I knew I had been guilty of irrational exuberance. Uh, uh, and, 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 and so it has played out, because this... This isn't just a debate about forming a government and who gets um, what position. We go right back into these institutional and structural issues. Um, it's, it's also about who has what authorities. Um, um, is the prime minister, the new prime minister, going to carry forward the authorities he has exercised previously? Um, or is the price of a deal going to need to be um, uh, some, some form of power sharing that wasn't there before? Um, you know, we are not a parliamentary democracy. Take a developed country that is like the United Kingdom. Um, uh, you know, they had a fairly interesting election and a fairly interesting process of government formation afterwards. Just imagine if part of that government formation process um, uh, had to be a discussion of um, whether more authority should pass from the prime minister to the monarchy, uh, that, uh, that you have a systemic debate, not just a political debate, because that's what's going on in Iraq right now. Um, uh, should the president have more powers 
than he currently does vis-a-vis the prime minister. Uh, Well, you're getting at core constitutional issues here, and you're doing that against a backdrop of that legacy of fear, uh, uh, where compromise may not be seen as essential, it may be seen as positively dangerous. Uh, uh, I've mentioned in other contexts, there's a pithy little phrase in the region, two men, one grave. Um, it's, uh, it's you or me. Uh, and I would think a, a political figure like the prime minister uh, has to consider, if he leaves office and stays in the country, could, um, uh, could a rival in a position of power use a still embryonic legal structure to bring, say, capital charges against him? Uh, it's happened elsewhere in the region. It happened in Pakistan. Uh, uh, Ziel Haq had former Prime Minister Zulfikar Ali Bhutto executed. Uh, so um, these are hard, hard issues. Uh, uh, all that said, I am confident the Iraqis will find a way in the coming weeks to settle the question of government and get on with the process of governing. Uh, members of the delegation uh, made clear to me their view that they had better do it because um, – People, the Iraqi people are starting to lose confidence not only in the political leaders they've just elected, they're, they're starting to question the viability of the whole system. Uh, uh, so again, our support and engagement in this process is going to be critical going forward. The Iraqis will have to make some hard decisions, uh, but it helps if we understand just how hard those decisions are. Christian Blackwell. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, uh, Jeffrey Goldberg uh, has a fairly compelling piece in this month's Atlantic on the Israeli view of a nuclear Iran. We've heard a lot about the Gulf states' uh, fears and Saudi fears of a nuclear Iran. Uh, Can you share with with us a little bit um, about the analyses that are going on in Iraq about a nuclear Iran? And I suppose most pointedly, uh, can we expect to get a request from the Iraqis uh, for coverage under an American nuclear umbrella uh, like we have in South Korea. Uh, and again, I hope you'll have the chance to um, uh, perhaps put that question to some of our Iraqi guests. Uh, certainly during my time in Iraq, I found very substantial concerns among all Iraqis, Sunni, Shia, and Kurds, over um, Iranian interference and Iranian threats. Um, By and large, that did not extend to a nuclear Iran. Uh, Iraqis are far more worried um, uh, about uh, an Iranian strategy of what I call the the Lebanization of Iraq, uh, the the creation of um, Iranian-backed extremist militias. Jaysh al-Mahdi, the army of the Mahdi, was one that the Shia-led government... Um, stood up against and defeated. Uh, But it's that kind of subversion uh, that I think concerns Iraqis more than the prospect of a nuclear-armed Iran. Several senior Iraqis were dismissive of that. They said, you know, uh, Iran's a problem, but um, the the nuclear issue isn't it. They'd never use it against us. We're right next door. What they do worry about... um, is the consequences of a military action against Iran that could lead to who knows what in terms of Iranian reactions. 
I think Iraqis in particular who think about this worry that the path to Baghdad, to Tehran or to the or to Qom or the other nuclear sites might lie through Iraqi airspace um, and that they would be seen as complicit uh, in such a strike whether they even knew about it or not and then what might happen to them. So it's a uh, it's kind of a, a second-order rather than a, a first-order effect. Since you asked the question uh, about Iran, and I didn't address it, I, I would say that um, this may emerge as the biggest challenge the U.S. faces in the Middle East over the next couple of years. Um, and there are no good options um, uh, that we could go into if you're interested. Uh, we had a conversation at a dinner last night, again, about nuclear umbrellas. And, um, you know, we had a doctrine on that. The Middle East has generated doctrines starting with Truman. You got the Truman Doctrine, the Eisenhower Doctrine. Uh, you got the Nixon Doctrine, the Carter Doctrine, the Reagan Doctrine, the Bush Doctrine. Um, and I would invite anybody interested uh, to come down to um, uh, the great university at College Station um, on the 30th of September at uh, 5 p.m. Rudder Auditorium because the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is going to be delivering a major speech on military power and American statecraft. You may be seeing the development of the Obama Doctrine. Uh, but one of those doctrines, I think it was the Eisenhower Doctrine, uh, talked about um, an American nuclear umbrella for our friends um, uh, in the region and beyond. Um, so one, uh, one potential tool for an administration looking at the Iranian challenge would be to dust off the Eisenhower Doctrine and perhaps restate it uh, as a way of assuring uh, the Iraqis, the Saudis, and others um, that we've got their backs. Excellent questions. I'm going to try to diversify. In the back, please. Being here on the subject of Iran, assuming uh, sanctions don't work, uh, do you think that the U.S. or Israel should take out the nuclear capability of, of Iran? Um, yeah, and that's why Iran may emerge again as the most important for foreign policy challenge for this administration if they have to confront that question head on. Um, here, here's the thing. Um, the Iranians are really smart. Um, the Iranians know what happened right next door to them 30 years ago when the Israelis took out Iraq's nascent nuclear capacity with their airstrike on the Osirak reactor. So whatever they're doing in Iran, you can be absolutely certain it is being designed and constructed um, in a manner to make it survivable from an air or air assault operation or set of operations. Um, uh, very deep, redundant. Um, uh, who knows what they're doing? Um, but they know what they're doing, and they're clearly their imperative right now has to be to ensure that what they've got cannot be eliminated the way Iraq's capacity was, and they've had 30 years to think about it uh, and to plan for it. Um, a nuclear, uh, an Iran with nuclear arms is a scary proposition. 
The only thing that is more scary is the prospect of an Iran with nuclear arms that we or others tried to prevent them from obtaining by military force and were unsuccessful. Um, so, you know, there, there are several options in dealing with Iran. Um, two of them begin with A, attack and acquiesce. Um, I think they're both very bad options for different reasons, but it, it does leave us with hard choices. Um, Frankly, I think the Bush administration was on the right track with its effort to build an international coalition uh, to make it hard for Iran. The Obama administration has followed suit, and parenthetically, I just note that uh, while elections are all about change, um, perhaps uh, never more so than in 2008, remarkable continuity in broad Middle East policies, certainly with respect to Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and indeed Iran. And um, I I think it's the right thing. Um, uh, It's not just sanctions. Sanctions are part of it. Uh, But it's using every tool we can find in cooperation with others to delay, obstruct, impede the development of an Iranian nuclear weapons capability. Uh, buying time is a good investment, um, and it may be an essential one in this case. Um, uh, you know, buying time against the day when, if not uh, a situation where the regime changes, perhaps where the policies of that regime change fundamentally. A lot of ferment going on in Iran right now. Um, I don't expect a counter-revolution. It's maybe more like the directory phase of the French Revolution when the revolutionaries uh, square off and decide what the consolidation of the revolution is going to bring. This could bring some fundamental changes in the way Iran looks at um, the region and the world. Um, uh, Good to buy time uh, and see how that sorts out. probably a lot better than either acquiescing or attacking. And I, I would just say one more thing on the attack option. Um, uh, we had our hands full in Iraq and Afghanistan, 25 million people in each. There are 75 million people in Iran. And uh, if we're thinking of something bigger and broader uh, than an air assault, which I have to think uh, uh, may not work, If we're thinking about something bigger and broader, I hope that we will collectively go sit under a tree somewhere until that thought passes. um, For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.